Welcome to the Gut Feelings Podcast, where we have unfiltered conversations about real life with IBD. And we unpack IBD nutrition and make it less stressful. Welcome to our podcast, Fina. You're our, the first person we've ever interviewed on here. <laughs> oh, no kidding. Oh, I'm so honored. I can't think of a better person to interview. So Dr. Vina K. Martinez earned her PhD at Baylor College of Medicine. Though her degree is in pharmacology and chemical biology, her work mostly focuses on neuroscience and how neuronal dysfunction contributes to mental illnesses. This work has been funded by the NIH and awarded by the American College of Neuropharmacology. She's been published in Frontiers of Physiology, Cancer, and other notable scientific journals. She's been in the field for almost 10 years with almost 10 years of previous professional experience as an executive administrator in various fields outside of science. Since the beginning of her transition from a non-science to a science-related career, she has observed a disconnect between the scientific and the non-scientific communities. She believes that filling this gap would be advantageous to the public and scientific community alike. Thank you for, for being here. So Vina and I actually know each other. We have known each other for, what is it? Has it been about 10 years now? Almost a decade? Yeah, about 10 years. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And we actually met in organic chemistry. So uh, I loved organic chemistry. You loved it. I hated it. (laughs) And I was certainly brought us together. Yes. I was right to make you my, my lab partner. (laughs) Yes, you were. (laughs) Yeah. I broke, I want to say at least three pieces of equipment in that one semester. (laughs) Oh my goodness. I remember, I remember going down with you to, uh, the supply and store to (laughs) replace some of those pieces. And so for those of you that can probably relate to this, Vina is also a really great friend. She has been with me since pretty much a year, year into my diagnosis and was really there for me without judgment, you know, through it all, even, even through side of the road, pull off on the side of the road, bathroom stops. (laughs) (laughs) That's real life. It is. It is. So I'm glad that you're here. And I guess we can start off by talking about, you know, so this is your, your second career. Um, what got you interested in, in research and science? Yeah. I mean, that's kind of a long-winded question. So uh, a lot of people in my position, they kind of just started in science and didn't really know where else to go and just kind of followed the traditional trajectory and it kind of guided them through all of this somehow. But for me, I'm, I'm considered a non-traditional. Uh, I have a bachelor's in telecommunications. And this, of course, for me at least, not for everybody, but for me, it kind of led to, a, to nothing. And that, of course, is disappointing to go through you know, education and student loans and all that it takes and and just to find out that you're in the same position as a high school graduate. So I had always wanted to build on that, but also I didn't know where or what to do and just kind of like snooped around in different places a lot. But then I experienced a personal tragedy that actually took me to the point where I felt like I had to redefine what is a mother, what is a friend, what is a government and what is education, just like rebuild my entire knowledge base in general. And so it basically was this mission to seek knowledge. And I found myself heavily engulfed in uh, psychology and sociology, literature. I started taking classes so that I could get a deeper understanding. And kind of two things happened at once. First, in order to really understand psychology, I had to take a biology class. And that just was eye-opening. I loved it. I was hooked from the minute. And then at the same time, I realized, wow, we really don't know much about human psychology. And we don't know much 
about what drives mental illnesses. And so how can we even treat people who are suffering in this manner? And so then I thought, well, maybe if I you know, become a, a physician, I can help these people. But then I discovered we don't have the tools. We don't have the knowledge base, which means we don't have the tools. And so I felt like the healthcare system was lacking greatly. We've made huge strides, but you can't deny that. But we are still lacking a way to help these people. So this led me to the next step, which is how do we generate knowledge that can actually help these people? And that's what led me to science. And it just became uh, like a purpose and uh, a passion that was very motivating (laughs) enough to go all the way through graduate school to earn a PhD, which is kind of crazy to think back on. Yeah. For people that don't know what it takes to get a PhD, can you talk a little bit about that? what you have to go through. Sure, to yeah. Of course. Uh, so there are various kinds of PhDs, but for, for one in like a biomedical field, like neuroscience or pharmacology or something like this, you first have to have kind of preliminary credits. Typically people acquire this while earning their bachelor's, but since my bachelor's was nothing related to science, uh, that's where you and I met when I was on my mission to acquire these preliminary credits in bio 101, chemistry 101, and just kind of like building up a repertoire or a kind of a a foundation in science. And then I had to obviously apply to various graduate schools that were within the niche that I was interested in. And then graduate school itself can kind of vary from institute to institute. And, And the institute I went to, Baylor College of Medicine, focuses on finishing all of the coursework within one year And in that same year, you kind of get to trying out different laboratories. And so we would spend a couple of months in one laboratory, then we would go to another and then another. And the whole point of this was to decide where do I want to spend my entire time uh, researching my dissertation project. And so while you're in a lab, you obviously have to interact with lab mates. You have kind of a mentor. They're like the principal investigator, which they basically run the lab that is their lab and they make all the decisions involving the lab. So it's almost separate from the Institute, but it's not. And then, so once you finish your credits, you now have to defend your project ideas. So you have to come up with a project that will mean something. So a a gap in knowledge that you intend to fill, and then you have to describe how you're going to fill it and why that's meaningful. And if you do a good job, not, job defending this, you're technically now a PhD candidate. And so up until that point, you're just like crossing your fingers that this all works out. So once you've joined a lab, you've defended your project, now you get into the meat of your project and you do experiments. And so that can look like, you know, everything you imagine, microscopes, mice, beakers, the whole gambit. So you do this for maybe four to seven years, depending on the Uh, level of ambition your project has. And once you've finished your project, you once again have to defend it. And at that point, you absolutely are the expert in that very specific subject. So nobody in the whole wide world will know more about that specific subject than you. And so what's weird about when you think about a PhD versus a master's or versus a bachelor's, like your instructors still know more than you do at that point. But At the point of a PhD, you have now literally generated human knowledge that has never been known before, and you are the expert of that piece of information. And if you successfully defend that project, you now are Dr. So-and-so, and then you spend time writing it up, and then you're on your way. So it, it can be quite an endeavor to kind of sift through everything that is known and kind of find your way to a new piece of information because nobody knows how to get you there. So you kind of just have to figure it out. And and typically your mentor is there to kind of help you figure it out because they've had to figure out many things themselves. So there's kind of helping elements, but essentially nobody knows how to get there. And you have to kind of have the endurance and the persistence to fail repeatedly and to determine that you're going to get to the finish line. It's such a long journey. (laughs) And emotional, emotional. Yep. Yeah. 
So I want to go back to that last paragraph about how you're real interested in the transition from non-science to science and how you kind of observe that disconnect between kind of translating science to people without a science background and in how to effectively do that. This is something Rebecca and I talk about quite a bit. We talk about just the different bias that can come up and how a lot of people in the community we're in, in Crohn's and colitis community, feel very confused and conflicted about what to trust and what's good information for them and what's relevant, what has evidence. Can you talk a little bit about what is the disconnect? Talk about the disconnect between when research is published and then the media now has it, and then it suddenly gets twisted into something completely different that maybe is not Mm -hmm. quite the truth. Sure. Yeah. So, so kind of starting from the beginning of all of that, uh, an example is it was less than a year before I started this journey of science when I learned what PCR is. And PCR is a, an experimental technique that replicates DNA. You can do this for various reasons, but the moment I figured out that we can replicate DNA and my mind was blown. I was, I mean, I can't even picture what DNA looks like. And, and here we are replicating something that we can't even see with the human eye. And I was just like, so impressed with mankind and just like excited by this. And, And it was invigorating to think that if, if we can replicate something we can't even see, like what is the potential of science? And, and the funny thing is that, Once I got into a scientific laboratory, PCR is so mundane. It's so boring. Nobody's excited by this. It's just like a a typical thing that is done. And so to me, that was just like the first indicator that there is a huge gap between the non-scientific and the scientific communities where something that seemed so science fiction-like to me was every day to a scientist. And kind of the more I got into science, the more I was like almost a little bit annoyed with the way scientists speak and and the way they communicate. Why are you talking like that? Why can't we just talk to people like we're people? Because you are a person, scientists or not, we are human beings. And we all grew up talking to other people. Why do you have to speak like that? And there was even a time when, when my mentor told me, you don't sound like a scientist. And I was a little like, you know, I want to sound like a scientist because that's the whole ambition, right? But at the same time, my goal is never to sound like a scientist. I want my audience to understand what I'm saying. To me, that is effective communication. If people in the audience don't understand the words that are coming out of my mouth, then my communication is off and and needs to be improved upon. And even in the scientific community, For example, my expertise is neuroscience, psychology, behavior, this kind of thing. If I were speaking to somebody who is a chemical engineer, we do not speak the same language. We're both scientists, but our vocabulary is very different. And our expertise is so wildly different that we would need to have long conversations to get into the meat of it, unless we spoke on a level that we each understand. And so... To me, the goal is not let's impress each other. The goal is, do you understand me? And can I understand you? And I feel like in a large way, that is at least one point where a disconnect occurs, not only between scientists, but between the scientific community and the non-scientific community alike, because it is a completely different language almost. There's just so many different words that are utilized in science that are not in a public arena. And then when a science or a scientist attempts to communicate to this to a layman, they completely lose them. It's, it's like speaking another language. And I think it's, it's sort of a failure in the sense that science is so isolated. It's almost like a little bubble all to itself. And, and so being able to step outside of the bubble and communicate to people is not in their repertoire of expertise. It, it takes a very specialized scientist who practices both ends to be able to do this. And so it's, it kind of almost requires a, a middleman, a liaison of sorts to, to kind of 
be the interpreter of both languages so that everyone can get on the same page. And so I think I've touched on a couple of the points of your question. Can can you remind me what other pieces I might have not touched on yet? So that, that's an important point I hadn't really thought about in terms of the translation is just like mm-hmm. the language of it. The mm-hmm. Because I don't know, Rebecca, can you think of anything that or where we've seen this, like in our own practice, I'm sure. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I'm listening to Vanna, Vanna speak and I'm just like, oh my God, this is so relevant. (laughs) And just in so many areas. And the first, I mean, I do have a question when you were mentioning Mm -hmm. about, you don't like something, you know, you don't need to sound like a scientist. Is this way of thinking between you and another scientist that's within your same field or is this just in general right between this was my my advisor so sort of my boss my mentor my trainer type it's kind of hard to describe like he he is a uh, principal investigator also a title would be like associate or assistant professor yeah um, but when i when i when i say professor most people start thinking oh he teaches a class in a college, right. But that's not what professor means necessarily in a research institute. Um, So it's basically just like, he's the owner of the lab and everything that occurs in the lab, he is in control of. And that includes um, a a large part of having like a tenure track uh, professorship. You have to mentor students such as graduate students or PhD candidates. And so that was kind of our relationship. He was essentially my hate to call it a mentor, but you know, like the advisor or the boss while I was earning my PhD. Um, And he was the one that told me, you don't sound like a scientist. And I I understand what what he meant. Like, what does that mean? Like you're, you don't, I mean, I can come up with so many meanings, right. But for Mm -hmm. you, like, like what comes up for you when you hear that? It has to do with uh, the vocabulary and the organization of the words used. And, and that's kind of where, like, for example, if you were to go from English to Spanish, you would kind of start flipping your words around like green car or car green. Right. And, right. and it's kind of like that in science too, in, in a, in a way, it's mm-hmm. like the words have to be sewn together just right. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's a, an extreme particularity and everything has to be so precise and mm-hmm. And also it just goes back to the actual words that are used. And, and I, I mean, I totally agree with him. I, at the time, at least I, I believe I've improved, but at the time I certainly did not sound like a scientist because that was not my goal at the time. I wanted my audience to understand and okay, there's, there's probably a very special skill in being able to sound like a scientist and get your audience to understand and, and yeah, that's a, a skill that I need to refine as much as anyone else. But I think so at that at, at that juncture, that, that's kind of what he was trying to say. Yeah. So if you were to look at just being a scientist, what part of the vocabulary makes up the percentage of, of importance of your role? Mm, well, a great deal. In fact, the, in understanding the gap in knowledge, you have to be able to read mountains of literature and fast. Uh, I remember when I started graduate school, it would take me at least an hour to get through a single publication because I had to Google every other word. Yeah, and I did so, that too in, so, in school. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's it's kind of a a journey you have to like, like learning the words. Language. Yes, yeah. exactly. Mm-hmm. And then of course, of course in communicating your science, if you're going to publish it yourself, or if you're going to make a poster or things like this, um, you, you have to be able to speak it, not just understand it. And so it is important. It's crucial. And, and that's why he made a point of telling me that I don't sound like it so that I would make an effort to sound more like a scientist because there is a place, a time and a place for this. But when it comes to speaking with the public or laymen, I feel like scientists are just so practiced at sounding like a scientist that they're no longer able to communicate with the laymen. 
Hmm. So kind of like what Ashley was saying, you know, what, in what way do we kind of see this? I think a perfect example would be the pandemic. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, I, I mean, yes, as a dietitian and really understand what research was. And, you know, as, as a master's student, we had to do like our own research project, which I know could be very different than getting your PhD, but it can also be the yeah. same actually if you use primary or preliminary uh, research. I, I think it's, it can be similar, right? Is that, is that true? Yeah, I would say so. Yeah. Um, to some extent. You know, I feel like with the pandemic, there was such a mistrust between scientists and the general population. And I, it's almost like we kind of went from zero to 100. So zero, not understanding how to read the literature, not understanding what's considered, you know, uh, good, good versus bad, right? Like what's, what's considered a reputable source versus just, you know, some Google site. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it, it just, it created a lot of chaos and just a lot of confusion. So I, I mean, that would be kind of interesting to hear what your thoughts were around that. Sure. Kind of when you said zero to a hundred, I, I felt like that's kind of what happened with COVID where we knew nothing and then suddenly we, we there's so much information out there that it's difficult to even grasp onto something. And I kind of feel like, so we, we had to generate that information and that knowledge as quickly as possible because large sums of people were, were dying. And so even right now, if you were to get onto PubMed, this is kind of like a huge database of, of literature publications and, and the like. If you were to get on PubMed and, and look up coronavirus or COVID-19 or just COVID, um, you, you would find a great number of recent publications within the past three years. And it's just a lot to sift through because there's so many different techniques. There's so many different agendas. There's so many different points of expertise that kind of give their special niche or uh, angle on what it is they're learning that it's, it's hard to kind of tie it all together into one easy summarized or abbreviated description of what COVID is and what it does and, and how to fix it. That's how I feel about it. It's almost like so overwhelming that I don't even want to look at it. So I totally sympathize with the public. It just kind of goes back to what I was saying, like as a more neuropsychopharmacologist, if I were to speak with somebody who is like a chemical engineer, I would need just as much help as a layman getting onto their level because I don't understand the subject. And I feel the same way about COVID. I'm not a virologist. And so when I think about COVID, I feel like there's a huge mountain of information and that that's too much for, for even, for even me as a scientist to like dig into and understand. So it's, I would understand a a layman feeling like, I don't even know who do I trust? Where do I turn? And so I, I, I feel like in terms of when you're, ingesting new information there's little things that can help you guide whether or not you want to integrate that into your own sense of knowledge so for example where did that information come from did it come from a newscaster who tends to have a very specific bias or does it come from a magazine that's trying to sell you something and you know, just understanding the source of information can be a big deal. If, if the source is credible, if you can look up the author or the person who is speaking that piece of information and get a better idea of their credibility, that can help you decide whether or not you want to believe what it is they're saying. But if you really want to take a deep dive and just know that you know that you know, I would recommend getting on to PubMed. Um, so the website is P-U-B, that is like public, P-U-B-M-E-D, like medicine. So P-U-B-M-E-D dot N-C-B-I dot N-L-M dot N-I-H dot gov. And so this specific website, you can just put in a word of interest like covid and it will populate a whole bunch of publications. And uh, you could put in two words if there's something you're specifically interested in, like COVID and the heart. And you'll get all publications related to both of those things. 
And so using something like this, that, that will lead you to bonafide scientific publications. Um, but if you don't have time for that, again, I just feel like if, if you were to understand the source of the information, you might have a, a better grasp on the credibility of the information. Have I answered the question or have I gotten distracted? Yeah, I think it's really brought up a lot of variables that I hadn't thought about. Just like how connecting all of these together can impact how we're viewing, how we're acting in healthcare too. Because Rebecca and I have talked about this. I would say this happens a lot with nutrition. So it's especially with things like like fiber, for example, (laughs) you know, there might've been a, an article about how we should minimize, you know, fiber to reduce symptoms, but then over time, new stuff comes out and then there's a lot to keep up with. There's a high volume to keep up with. And so then you have busy healthcare providers that maybe don't have a lot of time to keep up and Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you take that one article and then it, expands and, and then it becomes a way of doing things without always being updated with a new way of doing things about how we can adapt fiber and how important fiber is. And so, you know, before you know it, there's a lot of people that are afraid of fiber because of one thing, like fear of it triggering symptoms or fear of obstruction without seeing that entire picture of why it's important or newer research on, you know, why we want, might want to include it, but in different ways. So it can really become like this mainstream thought that becomes the way people practice. Yes. And, and something else that kind of what you said triggered in in my mind is when, when you read a publication or maybe a report of a publication in like a magazine that's talking about fiber and then reference that publication or something, it's always important to take note of the subjects of that study because demographics, location, all of these little elements really do play a, like a really big role and, and can mean more than, than what meets the surface. So for example, if we're talking about fiber in older women who have never had children versus fiber in children who have had scarlet fever or something, right? Like these things can really actually play a bigger role than you would initially think. So if you're reading something on fiber, don't just take it for granted. Don't assume that you're part of the demographic of the study. It's important to have like a deeper, deeper understanding of what was studied, if that makes sense. Yeah. That kind of reminds me of, there's a study looking at low FODMAP diet. I don't know if you remember this, Rebecca, but, and it looked at using low FODMAP in Crohn's and reducing symptoms. But if you didn't have like a large base of knowledge or other research that you've read around IBD specifically, if you look at other IBD studies where it looks at, you know, with Crohn's in particular, there's a higher rate of fructose malabsorption and FODMAPs. For those of you that don't know, are they're fermentable fibers that can cause symptoms like gas and bloating, but combining, combining the, the knowledge base of like, okay, maybe it's not just that FODMAP was effective, but maybe more so that more people with Crohn's maldigest fructose. So maybe it's not all FODMAPs. Maybe it's just high fructose items that people struggle with. So, yeah, I think it's, it's important, you know, like you said, to kind of connect the dots and to connect the dots with, um, not just looking at that one article, but looking at how does this connect to other things that we know about, you know, what, whatever the topic is in order for the people to see things in media there has to be an intriguing title, you know, and that's just, Mm -hmm. it's not like they're out to get us with trying to, you know, harm people. I think it's just the reality is, is you have to have catchy titles to, for people to want to click on something and and having catchy title doesn't always align with research and what the actual truth of the matter is. So it's like that, that's the other disconnect. I think is just that, (laughs) <laughs> we're trying to make it interesting and, and clickable when sometimes it, it's a stretch. That actually leads me to uh, another thought, which is kind of like how science gets to the, the public or the layman. And it, and it kind of like follows this funny little pattern or like trajectory, right? Like a, a scientist is trained to be 
rigorous and to always follow a very specific formula to answering a question and making sure that they have all the controls and, and all of the biases are accounted for and, and everything is very, you have to prove to yourself. It's almost like you're trying to prove yourself wrong, but by, by coming up short, you're essentially for sure, for sure, proving yourself right, if that makes sense. So by doing this, this, and this is like an important thing when you publish as well, like other scientists who are um, well, well known in the field that you are publishing and they read your publication before it goes out and they will ask you questions. They'll ask you to redo experiments and they will ask you to add controls, et cetera. Like they make sure that this is a, they call it a peer reviewed publication. So there's like all this rigor at the level of producing a scientific publication. And then it's, it's, as you said, right, that science is, is not likely to be well incorporated into medicine or into practice. And so there's, there's a gap there. Um, and, and there's even a, a position that is well sought off or it's called a medical science liaison. And this is actually a, usually either a PhD or an MD who's decided not to like pursue that traditional avenue. And they function as that middleman between the scientist and the practitioner in order to kind of bridge that. And, and I, I find this important because a lot of times uh, physicians have a very broad range of knowledge, right? They, they know about, especially if you're going to a general practitioner, for example, they know about the, the heart, they know about skin issues, they know about diabetes and all kinds of things, but on a very broad level, a scientist who's studying diabetes has a very pointed and very deep understanding on that point of knowledge. And so for a physician to read a scientific paper, it's, it's not very likely. Um, it's more likely than a layman, like say my mom, she's certainly not going to read a publication that I write, but a physician may be more likely to read it, but still not very likely to totally, they're not going to spend an hour Googling the terms, in other words. So there's, there's that gap. So things get lost from that point to the practitioner. And then again, from the practitioner to the layman. And a lot of this has to do with, again, time. The practitioners have not much time. And they, they I mean, when was the last time you went to the doctor? I was at the doctor just two days ago and, and the doctor was in there. Two minutes later, she was gone and that was it. And it's almost like uh, patients don't, because we can't put it all on the practitioners, right? Patients to have the responsibility of asking questions and trying to get to the bottom of their condition and truly understand it and to have that curiosity to want to understand it. It, it is your body. It is what's happening to you. And it, I, I think that it's just important to want to dig in and understand it completely. Like I broke a bone recently. Like what was the name of that bone? And what is the name of the tendon that that bone was connected to? And you know, we just fail to care enough. And so then the information gets lost. And so then when we're, we're seeking information about things that we think are relevant to us, but we don't even know the details of our own condition. And so that it just seems like the, the whole trajectory from science to layman, it gets lost at many different points and, and many different levels. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. So what you're describing is, is just better advocating for ourselves, but, you know, asking better Mm -hmm. questions, being a little more curious. So like you said, I think when, one challenge that we have is we have limited time with our providers Mm -hmm. and limited opportunities Mm -hmm. to ask questions. So we're left to often come out of sessions with doctors feeling, you know, having more questions. And let's say we go to Google, what are some ways that we can better filter things and spot bias. And do you have any tips around how we can be better about that? Hmm. Let's see. Well, I guess I feel like that was like a multi-pronged question. I'm sorry. Hopefully I can remember. No, (laughs) hopefully I can just remember them all once I finish my rant. Um, So, so firstly, in terms of, um, you know, having limited time with the, the physician, for example, um, or our practitioners, if you have an idea of what may 
what may be discussed between you and your doctor. Like, let's say you already know you're diabetic and you're going in to talk about your dosage. Just pop online and Google diabetes, Google the prescription that you've gotten, see how they come together. What other reasons might somebody be prescribed for that medication? Um, or what are some pros and cons to using that medication versus another? And, and kind of just self-educate. And, and you're right, um, that does definitely lead to the next question, which is, but how do I know what I'm reading online is real? Is that some kind of hoax or someone did bad research and I'm just following it because I don't know what else to do. So I feel like skepticism is a, a healthy skepticism is important, right? Don't just immediately decide that everybody's lying, but certainly question the authenticity and the credibility of what it is you're reading. So typically, if you're reading something that is quoting bona fide science, there will be a reference. And this can be like a sentence or maybe they'll even say the name of the author right there in this sentence. I would definitely follow up with that. And well, first, if you if you don't have time, just seeing that there is a reference, that's encouraging. But if you do have time to follow up with it, make sure that they're actually quoting appropriately, because sometimes things can get a little skewed and not necessarily intentionally, but it, it's always good to, to know that you know. And then some other kind of like red flags in terms of what are what is real science and, and what might not be, probably because the author doesn't understand it well. And if the author doesn't understand it well, it's probably a poor source of information. And so this kind of goes back to the vocabulary, right? Like if, if the author is using all kinds of vocabulary and you can't quite make sense out of it um, and and it kind of seems to be disorienting, I would probably say, like, and it's not a scientific publication, and the vocabulary doesn't make sense, I would say that could be a red flag. Maybe some other things would be if there's too much elaboration, like if it sounds itch, it probably is. Science typically is not trying to sell anything. It, it typically is just informative and dull, unfortunately, for the layman. Um, I get excited about simple science. Other people who aren't intrigued <laughs> like a dork like I am, then um, it, it could probably come across as quite dull. I guess those are kind of just the first things that pop into my mind. But, but I would also go back to look at the author. If, if you have a moment, certainly look into the credentials of the author, and, and sometimes you'll find you may not want to trust that author or perhaps that author is very well renowned and, and you feel like you might want to just keep going back to that author for information, like find, find your specific sources. It's almost like going through your own meriting process and validate for yourself that this source is a good source. And then that way you don't have to go through this process every single time. You can just keep going back to the same source. So I, I have a question. What yeah. would make an author, like, why, why would I not want to listen to one author from that's from a reputable source? Hmm. That's a good question. So let's say you discover that there's an author who has maybe some ties to or like bonds and stocks or something with a specific pharmaceutical company. And so he keeps talking about products, but, and maybe these products come from that company and maybe they don't but it kind of seems to bias the way he describes these products. Um, or perhaps there is a political persuasion for the author and he wants to make sure he's in line with Dr. Fauci or, you know, like you can kind of gauge the intention of authors and, and maybe you're on the same page with them and, and that's the reason why you trust them or maybe you don't like the fact that they have such a strong bias and you would prefer a more neutral source. Um, I, I don't want to discredit people who don't have a scientific background because I think people, I think laymen have the capacity to read and understand a scientific article because I was a layman when I got into grad school. I feel like I was the exact same thing as a layman jumping into a deep ocean and I had to just find a way to make it work. So when I started, I had to find a way to figure out 
how to read a scientific publication as a layman. So I know that it is possible if anyone listening to this wants to jump onto PubMed, pull up a publication, it'll take time, but you can read it and you can understand it. Just take the time to Google the terms. So I don't want to discredit an author that is not a scientist. They can get to the bottom of it. Um, and I, I think it would just be a matter of if there are any noticeable, obvious biases, like um, affiliations or associations with um, companies or political standings or agendas, maybe they're in some kind of a club or something. But if you, if you just do enough research on, on an author, and it should be out there. How far should you be looking back into research articles? Like at what year should you kind of like, oh, this article's too old? Yeah, that's a good question. So when I'm jumping into, I'm actually going to jump into a brand new field in August. So I need to do my own literature search myself and, and kind of the approach that I intend to take and what I would recommend to everybody. Look at reviews first. So a review article is a summation of all of the most recent publications on a specific subject. So they can have anywhere from like 50 to 500 references and they just combine all the literature that is relevant into a single article. So I feel like that will give you a really good boost in terms of identifying where we are in the field. And then if there's a specific subject in that review, then you can look at the reference that was used in the review and look that reference up and dig in a little more. And that will just kind of like take you into this rabbit hole, this like never ending kind of hole of information. But typically when I write references, I look as far back as, well, I like to start at the very beginning. Like how did this all begin? But in terms of where we are now, I look back about five years. And sometimes the field isn't broad enough and you might need to expand that to 10 or 15. It just kind of depends on how dense and how popular a specific niche might be. But I would say if you could, if you go back five years and you find about 30 or more articles, that's probably good enough. Bina, maybe you did say this, but I'm, what about our own bias? So this is something that Mm. as being in healthcare, one of the, what I think makes a really good healthcare provider are the people that can stay very curious and question mm-hmm. their self a little bit, question their own stance on things. What are some red flags and green flags around maybe checking ourselves for our own bias? That's such a good question. I, I feel like, I mean, I've never been a practitioner before, but I feel like it describes what a practitioner really is, right? A practice is something you do on repeat. It's like learning to play the piano. You have to practice it to get better and better and better. And so essentially, as a practitioner, you are utilizing information that already exists on repeat and typically within the same kind of demographic. For example, a physician in the third ward, we'll typically see a very specific demographic versus a physician in River Oaks, right? Like you have a very different type of people that go into those specific clinics. And so they're practicing over and over with a very specific kind of people. And so I feel like that that's an important, I'm glad that this is the way that it is, that uh, people get super hyper practice in a very specific thing. But it's kind of like you said, what if you encounter something completely new and out of the ordinary? And, and then you have to go back and question whether or not everything you've practiced thus far is going to apply to this specific person. And the specific person you're treating could almost be kind of incognito. They appear to be the exact type of, type of people that you've been working with, but maybe there's something different about this specific individual. So I feel like just kind of approaching your practice with the realization that you don't know everything about everyone and every specific subtype of person, one might be cautioned and encouraged to keep an open mind that this typically works, but what if it doesn't with this one person? And that one person could be every single person you see that day. 
and I think you might have mentioned this before too, like keeping on top of the literature and what's out there and, and what distinguishes one publish, publication's finding from another. For example, maybe menopausal versus prepubescent or something that could be very specific to the findings of that publication and just realizing that there's just so many unknowns about a very specified individual. And then in terms of how you might just keep yourself open-minded, that's a really good question. Gosh. Yeah. Because I, I can just like picture myself just feeling like I know that I know this thing because I've been doing it for 10 years. And well, from, from what I know about just like how our brains work, not knowing something Mm -hmm. is really uncomfortable. Like not like the unknown is very uncomfortable. And so that to me is a part of our own personal bias. It's like, it's uncomfortable to sit with something I don't know or something that might be challenged and that bringing awareness to the fact that it's uncomfortable because challenging someone's beliefs or your own beliefs is uncomfortable. It, I think our brains sort of want to defend what we know. I mean, that's, this is kind of like the nature of how we operate because certainty is, there's a lot of security in certainty. There's a lot of peace in that, but when you're challenged or, or your ideas are challenged, you know, that can make you feel kind of vulnerable. Yeah, I was going to say too, like with Ashley, you were, you know, saying that, you know, sometimes, and this was kind of, you know, when I used to work at the hospital years ago, you know, we would always say like amongst other dietitians that sometimes, you know, we'll say some physicians, they have this old school way of thinking. And it's like, they've created that connection with the older literature that they've learned. And Mm -hmm. it's, it's like this, nope, nope, that's, it doesn't matter what this says, like, this is what it is. That's also just kind of staying staying quote unquote true to your, for lack of a better word, staying true to your, to your research that you've learned just throughout school. Oh, sure. Yeah. And, and you know, that that's so difficult. I'm so intrigued by this because I can imagine myself having thing for decades and just feeling like, no, this works. I know I do this all the time and I know that this works, but, but I keep going back to the realization that, you know, even in science, when we say this is what we found, this is what the data suggests or indicates, we always recognize that the next method, right? Like we're always improving how we are uncovering information, how we're making our discoveries, new tools, new techniques, new fancy gadgets and et cetera. And we're doing better and better and better with with each iteration. So we know that what I find today could be different than what someone finds 10 years from now. It could be a complete paradigm shift, or it could just be very minute. How many nuclei of a specific neuron exist? Is it 10 or is it seven? And it all depends on the technique. And so as a practitioner who feels like, well, I've been doing it like this for 20 years, and I know that this works. Like that's that's true. If you've been doing it, and it's been working for you. But I feel kind of comes with maybe a sense of humility or um, being humble to the realization that knowledge is changing. It's growing and expanding and developing. And as a practitioner, wouldn't you want to be the best of the best? I imagine if I were a practitioner, I would want the very best outcomes because that's I think that's kind of one of the parameters by which a practitioner is ranked, right? Like, what are your outcomes? How are your patients doing? And how do your patients feel that they're doing? And I, I would also feel like it's part of my purpose in life to enhance these people's quality of life. And I want to do the very best possible job enhancing the quality of this person's life. And what is that going to take? And with that kind of an attitude, I would imagine I would want to constantly be on top of what do we know now? How has what I have known changed and evolved? And how can I apply this to my practice? But then again, I have to say, I have never been a practitioner and I have no idea. <laughs> I don't even know if what I'm saying is fair. <laughs> so I fully acknowledge that and, and I'll put that out there. 
Rebecca, have you, I, I mean, I know I have, I can think of, especially several times, especially having a team, having a team, I think allows you to have a little more accountability, have different viewpoints, be challenged. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that's one of the reasons why I like having a team. So I definitely changed my opinion about a lot of things, <laughs> even in the past couple of years, like what role, what am I trying to say? <laughs> I lost my question. <laughs> well, you know, I, <laughs> but I kind of, I like what you said because it, it's kind of true in science also, like we work as a team. I feel like it would be impossible to truly make those wonderful groundbreaking discoveries. I, I really believe it would be impossible if to do so, if people don't come together, different specialties, different types of expertise, like scientists and clinicians and laymen and politicians, if we all get together and we all get on the same page, right? And so then scale that back and, and put that into your, your everyday. What does that look like? And, and having a team and that accountability. You could even almost, you know, something we do in the scientific community uh, within an individual lab, for example, we'll have what we call a journal club, uh, which kind of sounds like a funny term, but it's basically one person per week will read to the group, not like verbatim, right? Like we'll, they'll present a publication that they think everyone can benefit from and that they think should be interesting to people in the lab. And this way we kind of help each other stay on top of literature without everyone being expected to read everything. Because now with everything at our fingertips on the internet, it's pretty near impossible to stay on top of everything. And so you kind of share the burden, but then also kind of what you're saying in terms of accountability, that's kind of the way it is in, in science as well, right? If, if I were to produce results from a scientific experiment, Somebody else can look at those results and say, how in the world did you get that result using that reagent with that animal model? It doesn't, it's just impossible based on everything I know about that specific technique. And, and so this is, this is kind of a good way to cross check each other. It's also like not exactly competitive, but you know, for the competitively minded person, you keep to stay more on top of a field than the other person. If, if you like that kind of environment to see who can keep up with literature better than somebody else or something like this, just to make sure everyone's staying sharp. Yeah. I, I hear what you're saying. We do something similar where we, we do some sort of research review every week, or we're always creating kind of documents with just what we know. And it, and I always think we'll come to this point of like, an endpoint, like where we have everything we need, but it, it hasn't happened. It just like, there's always something, even though we're, we're so niche, like we're just looking at Crohn's and colitis nutrition. It, it's just amazing how many questions we've had to kind of uncover and wrestle with, but also like just how much it evolves from, from yeah. month to month. How much are we yes. have to question things and question like, is this the best path? Is this the most efficient path for someone? Like, can we do this without with less traction or make it easier? So many considerations. But to kind of summarize what I think kind of my takeaways were from what you're saying is that is that really the the biggest thing that is a barrier to translating science is language is really having the language and curiosity, uh, curiosity piece to, to question things. And some general tips that you said were, um, basically number one, having criteria, like having some sort of criteria for what you're reading. Like, does the person have any licensure? What, what platform are they speaking from? Like, are they, are they a scientist? Are they uh, a doctor, a PA, a some kind of healthcare provider, dietitian, and, and then also looking at their sources. So looking at, do they have any sources at the bottom, maybe even looking into the sources that they put and then sort of staying curious and skeptical of what you're reading, um, looking at that bigger picture where you can, 
And I, I really like one of the things that you said, which is if it feels off, it, it probably is. <laughs> so yeah, looking into yeah. that, so looking into what feels off about this, does it feel like scary or, um, I think oftentimes the things that are off, they're usually sort of catastrophizing or like fear generating. Those use, those are usually things that are that are off or Mm -hmm. kind of a little bit far Mm -hmm. from the truth. And then, and then lastly, being aware of our own bias, being aware that challenging our beliefs is uncomfortable and that we all have our own sort of bias. And so being aware of that, is there anything else that either of you would add to that? I thought that was pretty good. I mean, I think also something really important, kind of what Ben was saying is that, you know, I like the fact that you do your, your journals. And just kind of like doing your journal club and speaking with your colleagues, you know, I feel like my creative juices kind of come out and then just like old things that I remember start coming up for me. And one thing leads to another. So you look at the resource from that article and it's almost like you start backtracking, reversing, like, okay, where did this come from? And so I can understand how you can kind of get into that hole. Yeah. I think that's a great tip for practitioners just to, if they're not already doing that, either doing that with their teams or or being involved in groups that do that. I know there's even like an IBD journal club that I've done some with and it, yeah, people that share the same interests and where you can learn from them and they can learn from you without having to do all of the work. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. I would also just, I feel like just for me as a scientist, when, when I want to stay on top of literature, the, the publications that you decide that you're the most interested in, Typically, there is a feature, and even on like the, the PubMed website that I mentioned before, there's features where you can set up a notification every time something that you're interested in specifically comes up. So you can set your parameters. I don't know, maybe it's a fiber and gas, and whatever publication comes up with that, you will be notified that there's a publication that is related to fiber and gas. And that way, you don't have to like dig through the literature all the time. You can just wait for the little ping in your email to come up. And I would highly encourage everybody to take an hour or two or however long it takes to become familiar with the vocabulary. It's kind of a, a tough uh, investment in the, in the onset, but long-term, it's going to pay back millions fold. So I, I would highly recommend just slowing down, carving out the time, maybe one or two afternoons, to really become familiar with how scientists speak about your field of interest. And that way, every time a publication comes through, you can just blitz right through it. You probably don't even need to read from beginning to end, just read the abstract and keep going. So it's, I, I would highly recommend just become familiar with the science of your field of interest. That's, that's great advice. There's a few different places like this, but one of them that comes to mind is examine. There's a website called examine that kind of breaks down topics and connects to all the different research on, on that particular topic. So there's different websites like that too, that can do a little bit of the work for you and, and break it down in a way that's not a scientific. So I would also say, look for things like that. Look for opportunities to, you know, to learn. I love that. Is there any, any closing comments you have around science or any words of encouragement for those listening? I also think that when you express an interest in your condition with your practitioner, they, they're nerds too. Like deep down, they are a nerd. And if you want to talk about some sciencey thing or other related to your condition, I, I would truly be surprised if they didn't spark some kind of energy in reciprocating with your request because, you know, it takes, it takes two people to disseminate information or at least two parties to disseminate information and uh, a huge part in scientists wanting to reach out to public and laymen and vice versa is understanding that there is an interest. And I know it can be difficult to be interested in it. It's easier to just be like, just tell me what to take and I'll move on with my life. But, you know, if you're interested and you want to know, express the interest. And I think the other side will become interested in what as well in terms of 
transmitting information. Yeah, that's really good. That's important because I think sometimes people are, Rebecca and I talked about this on the last podcast that we're, you know, as patients, we're often a little bit afraid to, to approach Mm -hmm. different topics and concerned about how we might be perceived. But it's important to know that like that healthcare providers are okay with talking about it. They want to talk about it, (laughs) you know, kind of breaks down a lot of barriers. Well, thank you, Vina, for, for being here. I really appreciate you, you sharing your experience and, and sharing some thoughts around, around science and how we can be better about how we interpret it and how we use it in our daily lives. So thank you for sharing. Yeah. Thank you so much. I've definitely learned a lot from this chat. So it was really good. Oh yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm so happy to be here. Ashley knows that I am happy to talk about science at any point in time. So all day, every day. Um, all day, every day. It's terrible. <laughs> Thank you for having me.